《约翰福音》十二章二十到三十六节。那时，上来过节礼拜的人中有几个希利尼人，他们来见加利利伯塞大的菲利，求他说：“先生，我们愿意见耶稣。”菲利去告诉安德烈，安德烈同菲利去告诉耶稣。耶稣说：“人子得荣耀的时候到了。”我实实在在的告诉你们，一粒麦子不落在地里死了，仍旧是一粒；若是死了，就结出许多子粒来。爱惜自己生命的，就失丧生命；在这世上恨恶自己生命的，就要保守生命到永生。若有人服侍我，就当跟从我；我在那里，服侍我的人也要在那里。若有人服侍我，我父必尊重他。我现在心里忧愁，我说什么才好呢？父啊，救我脱离这时候，但我原是为这时候来的。父啊，愿你荣耀你的名。当时就有声音从天上来说：“我已经荣耀了我的名，还要再荣耀。”站在旁边的众人听见，就说。打雷了，还有人说有天使对他说话。耶稣说：“这声音不是为我，是为你们来的。现在这世界受审判，这世界的王要被赶出去。我若从地上被举起来，就要吸引万人来归我。”耶稣这话原是指着自己将要怎样死说的。众人回答说：“我们听见律法上有话说，基督是永存的。你怎么说人子必须被举起来呢？这人子是谁呢？”耶稣对他们说：“光在你们中间还有不多的时候，应当趁着有光行走，免得黑暗临到你们。那在黑暗里行走的。”不知道往何处去。你们应当趁着有光，信从这光，使你们称为光明之子。耶稣说了这话，就离开隐藏了。John twelve twenty through thirty six. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip. Who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, "Sir, we wish to see Jesus." Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, "The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone; but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it." And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. 
Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. This is the word of the Lord for us. Thanks be to God. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris. Um, I have lived in China for 18 years now. Uh, my wife, Leah, has been in China that same number of years. We've been married for 16 of those. We have four kids, uh, all here at Capitol. Our most recent, uh, Olivia, was uh, adopted uh, back in January. She's from China, now part of our family. Um, I'm from North Carolina in the U.S., but have made this place uh, my home for quite some time now. I'm very happy to be sharing with you from God's Word this morning. Let me pray um, as, as we begin. Father, as we come to your Word, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, the meditation of all our hearts together be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the most jaw-dropping experiences I've ever had. I had recently made friends with a young man. This young man was not a native English speaker, but he had an English name, and that English name happened to be Christian. I said, well, that's very interesting. And so when we got together a few days later, I said, you know, Christian, your English name is Christian, but are you a Christian? And he said, I want to be but I don't know how. Will you tell me? Okay. And let's just say that conversation went really well. It was kind of my Philippian jailer moment. Sir, what must I do to be saved, right? We're always having people coming up asking that, right? Oh, but um, wonderful experience. And uh, with that kind of event in mind, we might find it odd how in the passage we just read, some Greeks come up to some of the disciples and say, we want to meet Jesus. We want an encounter with Jesus. And what's Philip's reaction? Uh, let me go get my friend Andrew first. Okay? He doesn't seem quite as enthusiastic to introduce them to Jesus. But, okay, it's a little bit different of a situation. Jesus is in the flesh on the earth. This is before he died, before he rose again, before he ascended into heaven. As far as we know, at that time, it wasn't that Jesus could hear anyone on earth who, who would call out to him at any time. Um, and Jesus was a little bit busy, right? We read just before this, uh, this the, that's the text we normally read on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, right? Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and there's this big rally saying, our king is coming. Our king is coming to free us from the Roman Empire, to, to, to liberate us from our Roman oppressors. And uh, we see a few different Old Testament scriptures, scriptures referenced here. And we see people shouting from Psalm 118. 
when they say, and actually the, the word they shout is Hosanna. That means save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. This is the context of, of that verse. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So it's this triumphant parade, and they're thinking, hey, the king is coming. He's going to give us success. He's going to set us free. He's going to set us free from Rome. Now, we might ask, why were these Greeks wanting to meet with Jesus? And then why was Philip a little bit reluctant to introduce them to Jesus? Was Philip maybe afraid of some distraction? Was he afraid that they would suck the life right out of this, this Jewish party? Was Philip just maybe a gregarious kind of fellow? After all, back in chapter 1 of John, we see Philip, after he meets Jesus, going to get Nathaniel, And he says, come and see. We found the one who Moses wrote about, the one that the prophets speak of. Okay, so he's bringing others in. And he already had a pretty good understanding of Jesus was, apparently. But, as we read further, there's a little bit he was still missing and that all the disciples were missing. So Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey, just as had been talked about hundreds of years before in the book of Zechariah, in chapter 9, verse 9. Okay, but verse 16 of our John chapter says, the disciples didn't understand these things until... Jesus was glorified. So that led me to ask, what does it mean when Jesus was glorified? Well, we see lots of things happening in the Bible that glorify Jesus. Now, what, what had happened just before this entry into Jerusalem? Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, a pretty astonishing miracle. And so he has this throng of people following him from Lazarus' hometown into Jerusalem. And the Pharisees are really griping about all this. They said, look at this. Because of this, the whole world is going after this man. Well, that brought glory to Jesus in a way, but it still didn't make the disciples understand. So, about being glorified, was Jesus talking about his death and resurrection? Maybe. But as we look at the resurrection accounts, okay, we see women who went to the tomb, found him empty, or Mary Magdalene had an encounter with the risen Jesus, but as, as they went back and reported to the disciples, their response in general was a, a little bit cold, a little bit doubtful, like, really, are you sure? In the book of Luke, um, on the walk to Emmaus, the risen Jesus is with the disciples, though his identity is hidden from them, and they're not getting it. Jesus even rebukes them for their lack of understanding of how the Old Testament relates to how the Christ had to die and be buried and rise on the third day. He rebuked them for their, their hardness of heart and their slowness to believe. So is Jesus being glorified referring to his ascension into heaven 40 days after his resurrection when he ascends to the right hand of the Father to rule over all creation? Maybe, but at that point, the disciples, we can see, are still a little bit bewildered at this whole thing. They're a little bit timid. They're hiding out in the upper room for fear of the Jews. Maybe it's Pentecost, ten days after that, when the Holy Spirit comes. God enables the disciples to speak the wonders of God in Jesus in the languages of all these different Jews that have come to Jerusalem so that these people from all different nations can understand. 
Well, I propose that all of these things are wrapped up in what it means for, for Jesus to be glorified. And it also includes how the Holy Spirit works in the apostles to give them revelation into Jesus. The Jesus that they had known in the flesh, walked with, talked with, eaten with, healed with. The Spirit gave them further insight into Jesus and into the meaning of his life, his cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming return. And the Spirit enabled them to spread that message throughout the world and then to have it recorded in the New Testament. So don't think because it's all about Jesus, don't think, well, I'm just going to kind of ignore what John or Peter or Paul might have to say in their letters. Just give me the Jesus of the Gospels. It doesn't work that way. Jesus sent them into the world for the world and for you. Listen to them. But coming back now to the disciples at the time of the entry into Jerusalem, what was it they didn't understand? Did they not understand that Zechariah 9.9 was all about Jesus? Did not anyone in the entire crowd have Zechariah in mind as they saw Jesus riding in on a donkey? So Zechariah 9.9 is not the only scripture quoted there. There's Psalm 118, Hosanna, save us, right? Um, they certainly had that in mind. God, save us from our oppressors. It made me think, is there any way in which the visions of these two scriptures contrast in any way? The psalm was in the forefront of their minds, but no one seemed to be thinking about Zechariah. So it's really helpful when we see the Old Testament quoted in the New, go back to the Old, see what was going on in that text. How, how is it understood then? So this quote, if you can have the uh, Zechariah passage up, I'll read it for us. Can we get the Zechariah up on the slide, please? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against the sons of Javan, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So he shall speak peace to the nations. Hebrew, shalom, that wonderful Hebrew word that means so much more than just the absence of war or conflict. It's a wholeness. It's a right relationship, right relationship of, of us to God, of us to each other, of us in the environment that we live in. The king was to bring this. Now, I'm not sure everyone there was looking for Jesus to bring shalom to the nations around them, especially the nations that were oppressing them. But there's a little bit of tension that I, of tension that I see in verse 13, right? Judah as my bow, right? There's a, there's a little bit of a war metaphor going on there. I made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons against the sons of Javan. Now, this passage I've quoted from the English Standard Version, except 
this word javan, that, that's the Hebrew word that's used there. Okay, and then looking back, as the Old Testament was translated into Greek 200 years before, that was translated as tatechnaton helenon, helen, meaning Greeks, the sons of the Greeks. Okay, stirring up the Hebrews against the sons of the Greeks, which is why the ESV says, against you, O Greece. So I thought it's striking. Here we have this passage about Jesus coming on a donkey. Greeks come up to Jesus, and there's this reference going on about something going on with the Greeks. Now, in the years leading up to Jesus' time on earth, there was a tremendous tension between Greek culture and the Jews. Third century B.C., Alexander conquers much, Alexander the Great conquers much of the known world, right? He pushes, pushes Greek culture out onto everyone, really forcing it upon a lot of people. Now, the Jews pushed back a lot. They felt that a lot of that was in conflict with, with the Torah, with the law, the Old Testament. Um, even at one point, a Greek ruler sacrificed a pig in the temple in Jerusalem to kind of say, hey, I'm going to show you who's in charge here. But then on the other hand, as Greek learning, philosophy, culture spread, this culture was so pervasive that about 200 B.C., the Old Testament was translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And when you see the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament, most often that's the version you're getting. Okay, so a huge influence on the Jewish people. Now, Greek culture prided itself in what's called the paida. That's probably related like, to the word pedagogy, right? Teaching kind of four pillars of that. You have the gymnasium, the theater, philosophy, and art. And to me, actually, that kind of sounds like a really fun weekend. Okay. Um, now, for the Greeks, they, didn't ne- they weren't always thinking of Greeks as like, okay, this is someone ethnically Greek who grew up you know, from a line of people, descended from people that lived in the Greek area, but it was a cultural thing. People who had embraced the paida, kind of these, these, these four pillars. Now, for Jews, Greek was most often meant in a religious sense. This was someone who was not living according to the Torah, not living according to the law of Moses. So, Jews and Greeks. And so, at the triumphal entry, though, we have Greeks coming up to worship at the Passover, the Passover, that greatest of Jewish feasts that every year commemorated God's big saving act of the Old Testament, right, where he liberated his people, set them free. And you have people who are not fully Jews, so I'm thinking they're probably not coming to fully participate in the Passover, yet they were coming up to worship at this time, and they are ready for an encounter with Jesus. And then what happens next, for me, is possibly the most anticlimactic scene in, in all of Scripture to me. See, I want to see them talk with Jesus. I want to see them talk philosophy and culture with Jesus. We can pull this next slide up. I want to see them talk about Philo. Philo was actually a contemporary of Jesus. He was a, a Hellen, kind of a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher. He did a lot of work to try to harmonize Greek philosophy with the Old Testament. Um, he did a lot of work with this concept of logos and connected it with the, with the work of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the wisdom of God. When John 
in penning his gospel, identifies, you know, he's starting to talk about who Jesus is in chapter 1. He says, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word, right? And the Word, the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And then, many years back, when I came to China, and I started to learn Chinese, started to read scripture some in Chinese, I was really struck by the gospel of, of John, reading the first chapter, when I see for Logos, they use the word Dao. Tai Chu Yo Dao. Dao Yu Shen Tong Zai. Dao Ye Shi Shen. In the beginning was the Tao, the Dao. Right? The Dao is with God, the Dao was God. Whoa! There's enough connection point here with this Chinese concept of Dao and the Greek Logos that the translators said, hey, this is a pretty good term that we can use for this. So that really got me thinking, man, how do we connect the gospel? you know, in this culture here. Um, I wound up actually doing a master's degree in linguistics, okay? I love the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, and this concept of logos was hugely influential for him. He was a, a philologist. He studied the history of words and their usage. He invented, it his own, he invented his own languages. He wrote stories to put these languages in languages in and for him as a christian this logos concept was hugely important right the the language the mind of god how does this play out in in our thinking and in, in our living and so i wound up doing a, a master's thesis on the lord of the rings and chinese translation and this concept of logos and Tao. how do they interplay okay so i'm really interested in this kind of stuff and i want to see jesus talk it out with these greeks okay what about the logos and then when Jesus learns that they want to see him, what does he do? I mean, it's almost like he's ignoring them. It's like he starts giving a farming lesson instead of a philosophy lesson. He's talking about seed dying and bearing fruit. What? But wait, again, we see something about Jesus being glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The, the disciples, they didn't understand the scriptures until Jesus was glorified. And maybe these Greeks would not understand what Jesus would have to say to them anyway until he was glorified. See, crucifixion, resurrection, which was about to come to Jesus, this was foolishness to Greeks, so said the Apostle Paul. When we see him later in the book of Acts, chapter 17, he's in Athens, right, the center of, of Greek learning and philosophy. And what do they say about Paul? They, said, what is, they say, what does this babbler have to say? He seems to be a preacher of strange gods. And why? It's because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, a resurrected body. And to Greeks, that is just so crude, so messy, so physical. Can't, can't we get to God by some kind of complex philosophical system? You mean to tell me that it's through resurrection. So if Jesus would have got into this philosophical discussion with the Greeks, they wouldn't have got it anyway. It wasn't the point. He was preparing to go to the cross for them and do what a discussion could not do. He's not ignoring them. He's saying, wait and see and then listen. And that's why Jesus starts to talk about grains of wheat falling and dying. So what did this analogy of this kernel of wheat, what did that mean for the Jews, the nation that was, that was rallying around their coming king? 
holding this party. You know, it's not that a grain of wheat doesn't have any life at all. It does. It has some. You, you can eat a kernel of wheat, right? But that's going to be the end of it, and its use is going to be very short-lived. Now, the Jews still had kind of this, this kernel going. They still had their land that they could live on, the land that God promised to them through Abraham. They had the temple in which they could worship God according to the regulations given in the Old Testament. They were even exempt from some Roman policies that, that they felt conflicted with the law. Now, they had a kernel of a kingdom, so to speak. Now, of course, they were still living under this pagan empire, this world-dominating pagan empire, whose emperors were now declaring themselves to be gods. The Jews, they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah to free them from all this, to restore them as the most powerful nation in the world. And so the life of that colonel was threatened, and that was too much for a lot of them, for most of them. Like the chief priests and the Pharisees who said just a chapter ago, chapter 11, verse 47, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, Jesus contrasts this grain of wheat to whoever hates his life in this world, keeping it for eternal life. Now, often when we think of the world, our mind tends to go toward that mass of irreligious people out there. They don't care anything for God, or maybe they're, they're pagans and they worship false gods. But sometimes, especially in John, the world refers to religious leaders who are setting themselves in opposition to the work of God, using their power to oppose God. The scribes, the chief priests, the Pharisees who oppose Jesus and his, his radical message of the kingdom breaking through, his miracles on, of mercy that happened on the Sabbath, no less, his speaking with authority, his declarations that it's not what goes into a person that makes the person unclean, it's what comes out of the heart. Jesus' increasing clarity that the Messiah was not coming to lead an armed revolt against Rome, but to do his work to open the gate for the Gentiles to come in to the people of God. These people opposing that, they were very much the world. And they wanted to hold on to their dreams for their nation instead of embracing eternal life. Eternal life, the life of the age to come that God was about to unleash on those who trusted in Jesus the Messiah. These leaders, they wanted their colonel to remain alone, right? We, the Jews, not these Gentiles. And sadly, in just a few days' time, they managed to turn the hearts of all these people that were shouting, Hosanna, to the com coming king. The vast majority of them were then shouting, crucify him. Now, I found it a great help to read the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, as coming and accomplishing what Israel failed to do in many ways. Jesus is the obedient Israel, the obedient Judah. So the Jews, they said, we're holding on to this kernel of wheat, this kernel of the kingdom, and it's not going to die. Now Jesus, who by rights, being the incarnate Son of God and being obedient to the Father at all times, he had every right to love his life and to hold on to it. 
but he gave it up. He gave it up in obedience to the Father, and he gave it up out of love for people, out of love for you, out of love for me. He fell to the ground and died. Now, the Jews, they couldn't hold on to their colonel anyway. Less than 40 years later, Rome, indeed, they came, they took away their land, their nation, destroyed their temple. They had wanted the Lord save us and give us success of Psalm 118 without the speaking shalom to the nations of, Hosea, of uh, uh, Zechariah chapter 9. They refused to become sons of light, and the darkness overtook them. Now here it's worth a pause to ask yourself, what am I holding on to? What's my dream for my life or my work or my family? Maybe, I, maybe I've asked God to bless, but that matters to me more than Jesus himself. I've found through the years that I've had many dreams, and a lot of those dreams involve being a star. Whether it was in sports or music or the theater, and I found when I leave those dreams to be in their natural state, they kind of want to remain alone. And what do I mean by that? I use whatever I can to try to dazzle other people and then manipulate them into getting what I want. And then on the other side, I've been tempted to despair that any involvement in, in those kind of things are just going to lead to that kind of tragedy, really. Um, but as I've given my life over to Jesus and hated my life in this world in that sense, I found that not only have I been reborn as a son of light, but so have my dreams, so that I might not remain alone, they might not remain alone, but bear fruit in connection with others, in love, loving relationships with other people, and as a child of the Father. So maybe what you're holding on to is, is obvious things that keep you from experiencing eternal life in Jesus. Maybe it's immoral relationships, stealing, hating others, slander, gossip, love of money. But maybe it's more insidious kind of things. Maybe you've taken on the persona of, of I'm the hardworking servant, right? I'm the tireless worker for the church. And that that kind of identity in this world is more important to you than Jesus. We can also ask ourselves, what does my culture, my nation, or even my religious community hold on to that's causing us to remain alone? How can we let it fall and die and be reborn as we experience eternal life? Have you let it die yet so that it can be reborn and bear fruit? So Jesus' invitation here, like we heard before, is come follow me. And his invitation is not, have me as a nice little add-on to your life. I'll help you get the stuff you want and make sure you make it to heaven at the end. That's not it. Jesus was on the move, and he invited his followers to be his servants, where both his, there's his presence and honor from his Father. And in the next section, Jesus makes it clear to his followers where he's going. He says, my soul is troubled, and that word for soul Greek suke, that's the same word that we just heard for life, right? Hating your life or keeping your life, okay? It's also translated soul. Jesus says, my soul is troubled. Pause over that and just let it think, sink in. Sometimes we tend to think of Jesus 
since he's God, just kind of floating through life, dispassionately dispensing words of spiritual truth. But you know what? Jesus' soul was really troubled. He didn't want to do this. He knew it would be agonizing. He's fully God, but he's also fully man, and don't gloss over that. Jesus recognizes he has two choices, both of which are, in a sense, legitimate choices. The first choice, Father, save me from this hour. God, I want to keep my grain of wheat alive. Now, if anyone deserved to be rescued from the hands of of sinners, it was Jesus. Elsewhere, Jesus said that he could call on his Father, and legions of angels would come down and rescue him. But Jesus recognizes what he was called to do. And instead of Father saves me, he prays, Father, glorify your name. So when Jesus is glorified, it becomes clearer who he is. When Father is glorified, it becomes clearer who he is, like a light shining in the darkness. The disciples, they didn't get it until Jesus was glorified. And the people won't get it until Father glorifies his name. And the Father himself here says that he has been glorifying it. He will continue to glorify it. It's a process that God has been graciously engaged in throughout salvation history. And he will continue to do so. And here I pause and I ask myself, how often is my prayer, Father, glorify your name? And how often is it just, Father, save me from this hour? And both of these prayers are legitimate. Jesus taught his disciples when they asked, how do we pray? That included... Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from harm. Right? We can ask God to do that. He cares for us. But at the same time, how much do we miss out completely whenever life throws whatever it has at us? We miss out on this opportunity for the Father's name to be glorified, to become clearer who he is. And I'm not just talking about being a good witness to other people by having joy and peace in the the midst of our trials. I'm talking first about us glorifying his name to us so that we can see him in our trials because we need to see it we need to be reminded of it we need to experience it more deeply and so I remind myself that next time I'm tempted to lash out and complain when life doesn't go right I, I play the victim card right I think that's very easy for Americans to do I'm a victim I'm gonna assert my rights instead look to the father and say glorify your name So the the father, he responded with a message that Jesus heard loud and clear, uh, but to the people, it just sounded like thunder. Or maybe it was an angel. Now, the message was for their sake, but it seems like the people weren't quite ready to hear it. But the the work of the father and his making his name known, known, it continued. Jesus talks of the son of man being lifted up, the judgment of this world and the ruler of the world being cast out. And so when Jesus said the Son of Man must be lifted up, they got it that he was saying somebody is going to die. And their response to that was, Jesus, what do you think you're talking about? You're already deviating from the dreams that we have for our nation. The Messiah is is supposed to be for us, right? The Messiah is supposed to remain and rule forever. So if you're the Messiah, this this Son of Man must be somebody else. He's going to be lifted up on a cross. That must not be you. Who is he? So speaking of Jesus as the Son of Man, I can't help but think of the book of Daniel. Two dreams or visions that Daniel was involved with. One when he was a young man, one when he was very old. And they both involve empires. The first, in Daniel chapter 2, 
Um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, right? The king of Babylon has a dream of this four-tiered image. Um, head of gold, you know, kind of section here of, uh, what was it? Silver, middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly of iron and of clay. And what's the, what happens to this, this image of these empires? A stone comes and breaks the feet. The image crumbles. And then the stone grows to a mountain that fills the whole earth. Fast forward many years later, Daniel again, he sees an image of four great beasts, each again representing empires. And these empires are defeated by the judgment of God. And the scripture reads, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So not a brute beast of an emperor this time, but a son of man, a ruler who restores the humanity of rule over the world. And does this sound like anyone familiar? God judges the empires of the world through the cross. The ruler of this world is about to be cast out. Now, normally we read that and we immediately think Satan, the ruler of the world, is about to be cast out. And on a spiritual level, I think that is true. But what's, what does that also mean for Caesar, the ruler of the Roman Empire, whose father Augustus had declared Julius Caesar a god? and thus declared himself son of God and Lord of the world. The Jews were looking for Caesar to be cast out, for the image of this self-proclaimed God to be shattered, and for the Messiah's rule to be spread throughout the world. But they never imagined it would come through the Messiah laying down his life, being lifted up on a cross to break the power of the empires that sought generation after generation to rule the world on their own terms. They never imagined that the one to defeat the beast of empire would be a slain Passover lamb for the forgiveness of their sins and the forgiveness of all that would come to him. That's the Son of Man. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And in the Greek, that actually just says, I will draw panta to myself. I will draw all to myself. Now, Jesus draws people. That's Jew, that's Greek, that's barbarian, you name it. But his reign is over much more than that. It's over all creation. Colossians says he died to reconcile all things to himself, whether things in heaven or on earth. He's Lord of all creation. His rule is over the whole earth, and it will never pass away. And the light of that good news was shining brightly to those witnessing Jesus' entry in Jerusalem, but they needed eyes to see it. And if they were to continue holding on to their grain of wheat, remaining alone, the darkness was sure to come. That kernel of a kingdom was not going to live forever. So reading this passage, I'm struck by how often I just want to remain alone as a single grain of wheat. It's like there's this constant background hum in my life. No one understands me. No one really gets it. And so I shrink from these chances, from connection with others, with this soul-to-soul, heart-to-heart connection, or even missing chances to connect with God. No one understands me. The, the problem with remaining alone is, well, 
you're alone. And that's not the place where we thrive. I become wrapped up in my own expectations of how life should work. And then when those expectations are violated, I lash out in anger. And uh, this has really been a season of repentance for me in front of my wife, in front of my, my children, at how I do that. And uh, I want to affirm again today that, that my life is not my own. It's mine to lay down and let die so that it can bear fruit for them. It can bear fruit in this city. It can bear fruit for the nations. And so, will you consider how is God calling you to lay down your life? How is God calling you to let it die? Maybe it's for the first time, as Rick mentioned. Maybe it's time for your first encounter with Jesus. Or maybe it's something, as a Christian, that you're holding on to. That God is saying, let this die and see me rebirth it. How do we both fear God and honor the king, as, as it says in uh, some of the books of Paul, in an appropriate way, and yet not making whatever our culture or our nation says is the most important thing, not letting that be the most important thing for us. How is Jesus calling us as a body to die that we might be reborn? All this, it makes me ready to sing along with the song that I love, a song by U2 uh, called Breathe, where Bono sings, Every day I die again, and again I'm reborn. Every day I have to find the courage to walk out into the street with arms out. Got a love you can't defeat. I want to take one minute now and just everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes and ask God, what is it? What am I, what's that kernel of wheat I'm holding on to that's keeping me from more fully experiencing that eternal life? And God, how do you want it? to be reborn and bear fruit. And then I'll close this in prayer.